James Hoffa is missing. The family of the former Teamsters Union president and ex-convict reported Hoffa missing early today. His car was found outside a restaurant in Bloomfield Township, Michigan, not far from where the family lives. The police were asked whether they thought Hoffa had been kidnapped. Their answer was, well, his car was there and he was not. In this series, we will not be focusing on the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa, but instead on something far more interesting. There is a common allegation that is bandied about when it comes to unions, their supposed ties to organized crime. We are going to try to wade through this topic and parse out what really happened and what it meant to workers and their unions, starting with the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. stoppage so thank you so much for supporting us on patreon to get access to this content this is the first in the unions and the mob reputation versus reality series my name is john i'm dan and i am lena and if you are not already in the discord you should hop in there because it's a great place to learn more about what we talk about on the show as well as interact with the hosts if you do not have your stickers yet just message us on patreon and we will get them to you as soon as we can and if you want to help the show a little bit more you can leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts or in a review of one of the many books about jimmy hoffa that i'm sure are available all over the place (laughs) (laughs) yeah So, just to get right into it, on March 7th, 1967, after finally exhausting years of legal appeals and extra-legal attempts to get out of his criminal convictions, James Riddlehoffa, president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, entered Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary to serve his sentences for jury tampering and defrauding the Teamsters pension fund. After a decade of hounding by Congress and the Kennedys, Hoffa was finally unable to avoid consequences for his long association with organized crime and corrupt handling of the assets of the powerful labor organization he represented. Just four years into his 13-year prison term, Hoffa would be released after President Richard Nixon commuted his sentence. Three and a half years later, in 1975, as you heard in the clip, Hoffa would disappear forever cementing his legend as one of the most controversial figures in the history of the labor movement, and his name as a stand-in for the very concept of union corruption. Riddle. Middle, middle name Riddle. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, I had to put it in there because it's a weird middle name. Yeah. <laughs> and due to the fact that, you know, and as we'll get into far later in the series, his son is also named James Hoffa. So... <laughs> Uh, Real Batman villain energy. Yeah. And and so Hoffa looms large in the American consciousness around labor unions. You know, one of the first things you'll often hear raised by folks with right-wing beliefs, or even supposedly, I guess, centrist ones, if you talk to them about unions, is the specter of corruption. You know, they'll say things like, well, sure, back in the old days, maybe folks needed unions. But now we have OSHA and the eight-hour day and all sorts of other rights at work we didn't have back then. Nowadays, unions just hold the economy back because they're all corrupt. You know, everybody's heard some variation 
of this when talking to people about the necessity of worker organizing. Right. And like whether they mention Jimmy Hoffa specifically or just this concept, this association between unions, corruption, racketeering, the mob, many people in the working class have absorbed this propaganda connecting unions to a broad, vague concept of corruption. It's interesting how vague it is, and maybe it's necessarily vague, because if it were specific, people would realize that anything you can accuse a union leader of, you can accuse business leaders of a thousandfold. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a big, big part of it. And we're going to get we're going to really try and break down the extremely politicized nature of the language that is used to talk about these issues and how it's been really set up to turn the whole discussion automatically against unions. And, and getting into this, though, like union corruption, the general idea the concept that unions are all in tight with organized crime and consist of little more than shakedown rackets that do next to nothing for their rank and file members is constantly brought up by reactionaries in their attempts to stop workers from organizing. Well, you know, we on the show know and will argue, and I'm sure most of our listeners will agree, that examples of union corruption are relatively rare and that all data shows that unions help workers get better wages, safer conditions, more self-respect on the job. I could go on and on and on. This allegation still gets raised all the time. So we felt like it would be a good idea to confront this issue head on, to try and give our listeners the tools to push back against the idea that unions are and always have been inherently corrupt. And so, I mean, this is going to be a big project uh, and we won't be able to be totally exhaustive about it, uh, but we need to confront the history of our labor movement honestly and separate facts from insinuations. In this series we will look at the many major claims of union corruption as we can find and analyze them using the framework of historical materialism. What we'll end up with is undoubtedly a mixed bag. It's it's undeniable that throughout the 200 years of the history of the U.S. labor movement, there have been plenty of corrupt union officials willing to throw their rank-and-file members under the bus in order to make themselves and their friends a quick buck. Fraud, kickbacks, extortion, assault, even murder have all been involved in the labor movement at certain times over those two centuries. But there's also the issue of the way that these events have been characterized as representative of the movement or even of specific unions as a whole. That assertion, that corruption is inherent to the labor movement rather than an aberration, is the precise line of attack that we aim to confront here in this series. And so what better place to start than with the union that has faced more allegations of corruption than just about any other? the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember growing up <clears throat> having my my many extremely reactionary uncles tell me like the Teamsters and the mob are basically interchangeable. Like those were just those were just exchangeable terms to them. Yeah. I mean, it's I've, I've I know, you know, I've, I've heard so many times growing up this idea that like unions are just shakedown rackets that mm-hmm. like their whole existence is extortionary like at its core. And, and I think that that is a really, really common idea. And we're going to get into why that might be. Uh, and, and, and I guess, you know, spoiler for the long series, it's not just because there have been some instances of actual corrupt union officials. There's a, a lot more to it than that. So, but 
before we can do the whole story specifically of the rise, fall, and disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa, we need to get into the broader history of the Teamsters as an organization. We got to go way back. Uh, this episode will be drawing largely from the book Corruption and Reform in the Teamsters Union by David Whitwer, a really excellent work that's full of fantastic information. It was by far the best book that I read in preparation for this series, and I genuinely recommend it, which is not the case with some of the other books I read for this. Um, <laughs> In that book, Whitwer chronicles the history of the Teamsters before and during the reign of Hoffa as international president and gives a historical analysis that tries to expose the way that traditional narratives around union corruption have been shaped by ruling class institutions that are ideologically anti-union. So the union that would become the International Brotherhood of Teamsters was founded in 1899 bringing together workers who made their living by running teams of horses to drive carts full of goods around U.S. urban centers. So if you've ever wondered why they're called Teamsters, that's why. And if you've ever wondered why the logo is a horse, that's why. (laughs) Because the union is literally older than trucks. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, and so like initially what this work largely consisted of, because of course today when we think of the Teamsters, the image of that worker that in most people's mind is, is either their UPS driver mm-hmm. or, uh, or it's more likely it is a interstate long haul trucker. Like mm-hmm. that is, that is what I think most people think of for the Teamsters. But as you were as you mentioned, John, you know, the, the union's been around well before there were motorized trucks. So like uh, initially this work was, was very different. You had the same general concept of like, hauling goods from one place to another. But the way that that was done, you know, back in the late 19th and very early 20th century was very different. Uh, Initially, and initially that worked. That's the other thing. I think a lot of what people think of for the Teamsters is, again, these intercity, like, trade haulers where you're going, you know, hundreds or maybe thousands of miles place to place. But, of course, at the turn of the century... That is not what most of the Teamsters were doing because there simply was not the road network in this country that would be capable of doing that. Initially, most of the work that these Teamster haulers were doing was hauling commodities within cities, from one part of the city to the next, rather than between them. Because, again, the road system between cities was uh, mediocre at best. (laughs) And because of the reliance on horses to draw these goods, because, again, the automobile was uh, not really around, (laughs) uh, that made the transport of goods long distance dependent on the railroads. So at the time that the Teamsters were formed as a union, workers involved in Teamster work were looked on by much of the country is very low status, unskilled workers by many outside the profession, despite the fact that being able to handle a whole team of horses rushing huge loads of goods undamaged through cramped city streets that are like maybe paved with like cobblestones, maybe not paved, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's certainly not, you know, the tarmac we're used to today. Getting all of that through the city as fast as possible without damaging it while being constantly surrounded by other drivers all trying to do exactly the same thing is anything but unskilled. Right. Well, it's also a little bit um, what's the opposite of reassuring that uh, (laughs) the idea that someone watching a worker doing a feat of what is basically heroism has always had the instinct to be like, I could do that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, exactly. And when I think like people have that same thought today, sometimes it'll be like, oh, this person just drives a truck. Mm -hmm. Anybody could do that. And it's like, okay, well, go do it then. Sure. (laughs) Like, and then come back. Tosses them the keys. Yeah, and tell (laughs) it, tell it, come back and tell us how easy it is after a month of doing that job. And so the style of work, you know, that the Teamsters were doing made organizing the Teamsters very different than other early unions, which were largely focused on organizing workers in a static location, like a factory or a mine or a port, or even just, you know, construction workers who maybe they don't work on one job site, but it's the same crew. And, and it's, they have a, you know, they're, you can relatively easily nail them down. That was, of course, not true with the Teamsters because their job is transportation. They are constantly moving from place to place. The other thing that distinguished uh, the or organizing the Teamsters from a lot of other organizing work in very early unions was that many Teamsters also owned their own means of production, their horse, team, and cart, you know, making them basically early owner-operators. They wouldn't have used mm-hmm. that term, but the, the modern equivalent. And, and that set a different focus for organizing demands than other unions. And that actually led to tensions early on within the union between those who owned their own teams and carts and those who did not. And those who worked at larger firms. And after, you know, some early, uh, friction that did lead to a ban on those who employed others to labor for them on teams that they owned from membership within the Teamsters Union, clarifying that the union was for drivers employed by others and for individual owner operators, not for bosses. Wow. And it's interesting because that division between owner operators and hired drivers is one that the you know trucking companies still try to exploit today mm-hmm. to drive tension among workers. And it was funny. It's it's not just the employers that do that. Like one of the books that I used as a source for this, we're not going to use it much in this episode, but one of the books, uh, The Hoffa Wars by Dan Muldea, the author of that book actually has a very sharp position uh, in favor of owner operators and is like, oh. he spends half of his time complaining about the actual legitimate real crimes that Jimmy Hoffa committed, complaining about how badly he treated owner operators, which like, <laughs> okay, maybe true, but that's pretty low down my list of yeah. like <laughs> the bad shit that Jimmy Hoffa did. <laughs> Weird Hill, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, cause it, he'll, he'd go on for paragraphs about like, the proud owner operator. It's a very petty bourgeois like sure. viewpoint on things and really minimizes the really exploitative nature of the whole owner operator mirage that that, that, that really is. But anyways, <laughs> back to the early Teamsters. One of the other aspects of inner city logistics that the Teamsters plied their trade in that we have to consider to understand their development is how incredibly competitive it was. In the late 19th and early 20th century, work hauling goods was handled by a seemingly infinite number of small firms, often specializing in one specific commodity like coal, milk, or laundry. And since all one needed to start a hauling business was a team of horses and a cart, that low capital barrier to entry into the petty bourgeoisie attracted many what we would consider today to be startups. That created fierce competition between hauling firms as well as competition within those various industries as they sought to undercut each other and secure as much local business for their firm as possible. And so this cycle of business formation 
aggressively slashing rates to get new customers, pushing other firms out of business by charging lower rates, but then falling to new competition that cuts even below your low rates, was extraordinarily cutthroat and destructive for business and workers alike. This sort of competition encouraged haulers to slash labor costs to the bone, forcing drivers to work longer and longer hours at faster and faster paces just to earn enough to make ends meet. We love the logic of capitalism, don't we, folks? <laughs> yeah, it's because it's funny because, you know, when you, you, you hear, especially you get this from libertarians, mm-hmm. you uh-huh. hear all these people That's be like, I thought too. Well, we love capitalism because of competition. What we hate is crony capitalism mm-hmm. where we have monopolies. And it's like, first off, that distinction is not as sharp or as clear as you think it is, Mr. Yeah. Libertarian. Uh, and it's 90% of the time is a mister. Uh, well, yeah. It's like the libertarian is like, uh, market, can I please have competition? And the market is like, for better services? Yes. Actually uses competition. <laughs> Uh, for labor exploitation and intensification. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and and the thing is, it's like, in addition to, of course, the incredibly harsh exploitation of the workers, the rising immiseration of their conditions, the rampant corruption and the cutthroat business practices even hurt, you know, a lot of members of the, the like, small business owner community because they would get you know, driven out of business and financially ruined. And so, interestingly, one of the results of the fierce competition and rate cutting within Teamster work meant that the Teamsters were actually one of the first U.S. unions open to admitting immigrants and black workers. Since Teamster work saw their pay slashed to the bone and its social status near the bottom of society, it was work that often went to some of the lowest paid workers in whatever region they were operating in in the Northeast and much of the Midwest. This meant many European immigrants who had recently arrived in the United States in the late 19th century. And in the South, this meant largely black workers understanding the material realities of the industry trumped any ideological feathers that might be ruffled by organizing black workers alongside white workers the International Brother to Teamsters was one of the first major unions that actually had integrated locals. However, uh, before, you know, we trumpet the Teamsters as, as true pioneers in, in, in anti-racist organizing, it's important to understand that the motivations behind these early moves was purely pragmatic. Mm-hmm. While there may have been, you know, plenty of actually anti-racist members of the Teamsters union, this organizing prerogative was largely based on the conditions of the industry rather than an ideological commitment to fighting white supremacy. And alongside integrated locals in the South, which of course were very rare at the time, there were also segregated black and white locals of the Teamsters, depending on the region in in the South that they were operating in. The early Teamsters leadership was more willing than most to organize black workers as well as immigrants from like Eastern and, and Southern Europe who often faced some level of discrimination. But the commitment to fighting oppression often ended where the societal pushback became too strong. But one of the other results of the highly competitive nature of Teamster work and the constant shifts in the business landscape as new firms emerged, competed, and went bankrupt was a desire by both workers and by employers for more stability in the market. This led to the Teamsters Union actually being able to serve as a source of stability for many businesses. 
by ensuring uniform pay rates among drivers across the whole industry, the union could help stabilize competition while halting the race to the bottom, which dragged workers' wages down with it. It was this aspect of the union as a stabilizer for workers' wages that would actually bring with it the first allegations of corruption. Oh, wow. They do something really good and everyone's like, you sure you're not evil? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so for an example of this, and I think people will understand right away when I describe this arrangement, the line of attack that would come at it from the mainstream press. So in 1902, Teamster workers in Chicago formed an agreement with the various coal hauling firms in the city to stabilize competition. The coal haulers themselves, the employers, formed the Coal Team Owners Association to bargain with the union and signed an agreement that doubled workers' wages and slashed their hours. Workers went from $8 a week to $15 a week, and their weekly hours dropped nearly in half from 80 hours a week, which... Jeez. Yeah, that's just crazy. And, and... to down to 52, which is, of course, you know, still too high. But for 1902, is a was a relatively short work week. I mean, and I mean, workers made more money and they worked less hours. And by taking their labor costs out of competition with each other, the coal haulers were able to raise prices of their coal without risk of being undercut by competitors. Teamsters would work to organize drivers at carriers who refused to join the organ- owner's organization and strike against those refusing to pay union wages. Workers made more money, bosses made more money, and firms stopped going out of business. The primary losers from this agreement, of course, were customers, who now had to pay higher prices for coal. But the workers also weren't working 80 hours a week anymore. (laughs) Right. So uh, this sort of arrangement today would be called a trust or a cartel, and would be accused of, of wage-fixing, price-fixing, and, and it would be ruled an illegal restriction of free trade. And so this type of setup, which were, I guess, collo- to, to, for the technical term, would be called a collusive arrangement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and that's what first drew the accusations of racketeering to the Teamsters, a term that has been deployed constantly against unions in the decades following this, really a century following this. Yeah, it's the first uh, letter in the RICO acronym, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that, uh, yeah, and uh, that is, does come directly out of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when it became clear that the union had developed the sort of organized worker power that could actually enforce higher wages on companies, immediately <laughs> they were attacked by capitalists and the media that they owned. And, and that brings us into the, the details of, which may sound pedantic, but are really important for this discussion mm-hmm. of looking at the terminology that's used to discuss this. So Webster's Dictionary, no. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it is pretty important considering, you know, we're talking about like the actual ways in which things are observed. And, you know, we do have to kind of, I don't know, outline definitions so that we're all coming at it from the same angle, you know? Yeah, and I think, and this is something that I really appreciated from Whitworth's book. He does a great job of really looking at the way language is used in a far better way than you'd see most liberals because, like, there's a a very technocratic way of looking mm-hmm. at language in, in, in the U.S. Where, that denies that words are, like, inherently political, except when it's convenient for the right to say that they are. <laughs> right, well, except when you're looking at, like, 
Soviet posters or something. Right. <laughs> right. So the term corruption has been levied at unions literally since they were first formed. And, and really what corruption means at its basis level is taking some kind of bribe that doesn't necessarily mean you're handed a, you know, a bag with a dollar sign on it, uh, but some sort of a bribe, which benefits someone personally in exchange for misusing a position of power. That's kind of the, the broadest, simplest definition of corruption. Misuse <laughs> there being kind of, uh, you know, perceptive, you know, who mm-hmm. mis- misuse from whose perspective. Yeah, well, right. And like like all of the the plot and background exposition in the first 3 episodes of The Sopranos are basically just explaining what racketeering is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and so while corruption has absolutely existed within the US labor movement. I mean, we've covered it plenty in our patron series on the decline of American unionism. I mean, we talked about it recently with the kind of with the board member of that college down in Florida who's mm-hmm. also in the ILA and is working and using his position on that board to hurt the faculty union there. I would call mm-hmm. that a very clear case of corruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, weirdly, the press does not call it that. And that's where we get into the key here. Because as you were pointing to, Lena, exactly the problem with this is what is corrupt and what is not often varies depending on how you're looking at it and who the interests are that we're talking about. Sometimes there's clear cut examples, mm-hmm. but it's really obvious for everybody to see. But a lot of times it's not that clear. And the sort of agreement that the early Teamsters were engaging in, like what like we just described with the, the Coal Haulers Association, it's really hard from a working class perspective to call that a corrupt arrangement, at least from the workers' perspective. I and 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 perhaps from the the business perspective it was, but we don't care about that perspective because that's the exploiters. <laughs> right. Fuck them. <laughs> like the duty of the leadership of any labor union is to fight for its membership. And of course we would, we would expand on that from a revolutionary perspective of fighting for the broader working class as a whole, but at its simplest, it's fighting for the material conditions of the membership. And these contracts that the Teamsters signed as part of this arrangement with the coal haulers that doubled workers' wages while slashing their hours clearly did that. It clearly improved the material conditions of the members of the union. And and so, you know, we'll get into later whether this sort of arrangement was necessarily a great idea from, from a strategic perspective mm-hmm. for the union to do. But on the question of whether it's corrupt, I from a, from the working class's perspective, this sort of arrangement, I don't really think corrupt is the right word for it because the workers are coming out of it better than they went into it. And the only downside is, I mean, you know, for the workers is that the price of coal went up, but far less than their wages went up. So Yeah, well, and also the workers didn't set the coal price. Right. That's the thing. They just wanted more money for themselves. The price could have gone up or not. So, like, right. you know. Exactly. So the term racketeering has a little more relevance mm-hmm. with this sort of arrangement, but that word is even more suffused with class ideology than the word corruption because when people define what racketeering is, they're often really evasive about exactly what they mean by that. And when you do reduce it to its most basic form, it's clear that there's a huge amount of relativism in 
really how you would define something as a racket. Because the term racketeering, the basic definition is usually setting up an illegal, coercive, or extortionary scheme to extract profit against the will of the victims of that scheme. Oh, so like wage theft. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or, you know, wage labor more generally. Sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And so, and one of the definitions cited by David Whitwer in his excellent book that was often used in the capitalist press to describe what racketeering is. And I think this is a good one to look at because even if we wouldn't agree with this definition, it tells us where these people are coming from and where mm-hmm. their ideology is looking at. And and the definition they often used was the illegitimate use of organized power. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, such a vague line. Illegitimate, according yeah. to whom? Yeah. I mean, organized it, power, that's also the bosses. It, it, it is literally like one of the highest densities of undefined terms I've ever seen. Yeah, and, and, but that's word for word how Department of Justice antitrust division head Thurman Arnold described unions generally. <laughs> that, mm. that is how they operated. So again, this, you have somebody in the DOJ from the very beginning of the 20th century, just calling unions inherently rackets. Right. (laughs) Because, again, we see the inherent problems with these definitions and how they're deployed. As you were alluding to, Lena, who defines what is coercive in a legal manner versus an illegal manner? And we know the answer, who is the state. But, like, when we're, you know, considering this term, like, why do they get to define it? Why don't the workers define it? <laughs> We're going to have tons of listeners of this show just start going, I love worker racketeering. I love <laughs> worker racketeering. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And, and then, of course, there's that secondary definition, you know, the, the illegitimate use of organized power. Well, that begs the question, who defines whether the use of organized power is legitimate or not? Who, who gets mm-hmm. granted the right to declare, yes, this group is legitimate? And no, this group is not like as we see in the press all the time today, capitalists view the wielding of any form of power outside the control of their class as inherently illegitimate. I mean, the withholding of labor has been called a form of violence, even as recently as like a month ago by the president of the U.S. occupied country of South Korea when they shut down the trucker strike there. Mm hmm. Basic strikes for better wages and benefits have been called extortion ever since the very first strikes in the textile industry in the early 1800s. These are inherently loaded terms, and we have to look at them through a materialist class-based lens. And the reason that I was glad that you pointed to wage theft and why I pointed to wage labor is because really under the traditional definition of racketeering, Again, to repeat, you know, the the basic idea, setting up an illegal, coercive, or extortionary scheme to extract profit against the the will of the victims of that scheme. Uh, All of capitalism, really, is a form of racketeering. Yeah, it's kind of an analogous realization to when you're like, oh, pretty much every business is a multi-level marketing scheme in some capacity. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like, because, you know, fundamentally, with, with the whole setup of wage labor, workers are forced, under pain of starvation, to allow capitalists to extract profit from their labor while only paying them for a portion of their work, pocketing the rest. Mm-hmm. And yet, that is not considered extortion or racketeering under capitalist law because it's the foundation of all capitalist property relations. 
But workers coming together in an organization to advance their interests and telling companies, if you don't pay us a living wage, we'll strike your business until you do, is considered extortion by the ruling class. Maybe not legally, <laughs> but they would love it to be. Um, and these definitions, you know, corruption, racketeering, extortion, are eminently political, and they're bound up with the capitalist ideology of the supposed free market. And they have a huge bearing on whether we consider the actions of a labor union to be corrupt, whether we consider them to be involved in so-called rackets, or if they're just, you know, doing what unions are supposed to do and simply fighting for the best conditions for their members that they can get using the most effective methods that they can leverage. Now, that's not to say that there's no such thing as racketeering. Like, I don't want to come out here and be like, no union has ever committed a crime. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, again, we want to look at this honestly. And, and so that's why I think it's so important to really dig into the political nature of this language. Because, you know, we're not saying that racketeering's never happened, that it's never happened in unions, or that union officials have never been involved in extortionary schemes benefiting themselves and organized crime rather than the members. That's one of the primary crimes associated with Jimmy Hoffa and his supporters and the leadership of the Teamsters Union. And certainly that did happen. And we will discuss examples of it, uh, quite a few, unfortunately. But when we try to understand the difference between the scope of how union corruption has been portrayed, how it's been described in the media, in our textbooks even, compared to the scope in which it actually occurred from the perspective of the working class, which is the perspective, of course, on this show that we care about, uh, we have to understand the class forces behind these accusations and their interest in discrediting all union activity, not just the actual corrupt actions of some leaders. Our goal in this series is to separate the real instances of corruption, where union leaders compromise the interests of the rank and file for their own gain, from those allegations of broad corruption aimed at destroying the very concept of labor organization so that we can make an honest assessment of them. That's a pretty tall order. Hopefully we do a good job. I've, so far, you know, I, I'm pretty excited to be going over all of this. Well, you know, you situate yourself so that your interests are in line with the rank and file, and then you do materialism from there, and it works pretty good pretty much all the time. <laughs> That's the hope. I, I hope I hope that this is is helpful for folks. And so now that we've gone through this detour that I'm sure is probably very boring of digging into the political nature of language. <laughs> uh, if, they're, if they're patrons of our show, I, I'm sure they're like, holy shit, they're talking to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so now that we've gone through all the terminology stuff, we can get back into how this all played out historically. So early strikes by the Teamsters often did become violent due to the distributed nature of their work. Because unlike if you go on strike at a factory and you're going to pick at the factory you and you want to stop the owners from bringing in scabs, you just blockade a couple of physical entrances and, you know, that's it. Not that that doesn't become violent, but you have a static location and a couple of choke points mm -hmm. that you have to focus on. That's not the case for the Teamsters. Because the workplace of the Teamsters is not one static location. It's the roads of the city. And so that meant that the Teamsters had to directly confront non-union haulers in the streets to get them to honor a picket line and not break the strike. And this actually was one of the reasons union buttons became so important for Teamsters. Because it allowed them to easily determine in the streets visually who was a union driver and who was a potential scab. 
Mm. The necessity of using physical force to blockade scabs, and now that doesn't necessarily mean violence. It can literally just mean using your cart to block the road, right. which that sort of stuff has been construed as violence by capitalists, despite the fact that we know that it obviously is not. But the necessity of using physical force to blockade scabs due to the fact that it's not just a couple of choke points you have to block off. And to ensure the integrity of any strike led to vicious attacks on the workers in the press. Left out of these attacks, of course, was the violence initiated by the scab haulers themselves and the companies that were hiring them, who often Mm -hmm. hired armed guards to escort their scab drivers to break through picket lines. As always, the violence of the bosses was ignored and excused, while the violence committed by workers to defend themselves is put on the front page and blamed entirely on the union. Yeah, I mean, hiring armed guards, definitely you you bear no responsibility for escalating that situation by introducing <laughs> weapons. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, how many times have we seen this throughout history where you have like, you know, the Pinkertons mm-hmm. or other form, like gun thugs and mercenaries, you know, in, in, in the coal towns of Appalachia or out, out west or, you know, at, at in the northwest in, in logging camps with the IWW organizing time after time after time you have workers who defend themselves from company guards and then the story in the press is labor violence is attempting to overthrow society mm-hmm. yeah for more examples of this you and you have if you haven't listened to them yet go back and listen to especially episode 1 of the repressive state apparatus series yeah absolutely i mean it, it's it's a long consistent history of only one portion of the violence involved in these struggles ever being amplified in the press. And another aspect of Teamster work that brought swift criticism from the press was their involvement in the strikes of other workers. So because the Teamsters haul goods from one business to another, the Teamsters inherently just interact with many other different industries. Mm-hmm. And when workers at those businesses strike, that puts the Teamsters in a tough position. They may not be striking their employer, and they may not be striking their direct employer, but they don't want to cross the picket line. And to this day, the Teamsters ensure their contracts allow them to honor picket lines and not cross them for deliveries. But the honoring of other unions' picket lines was deemed corrupt and extortionary by businesses when really, again, it's just a simple show of class solidarity. Yeah, that one especially, I mean, tell me another one because like in <laughs> in what universe could it possibly be corrupt to be like, hey, those guys said nobody is doing work in that building, so I don't think I'm going to do work in that building. And then they're like, corruption like what are you talking about (laughs) you're colluding with the other striking workers this is a racket (laughs) it's bananas yeah the the phrase illegal restriction of free trade comes up so many times (laughs) in the early history of the teamsters it's like like they have like a stamp the, the press or they just you know up there's a strike, illegal restriction of free trade. Do we need to know the details? No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> so this aspect of honoring other picket lines, while you know we, of course, view it as a good thing, as a merit of the history of the Teamsters all the way up through today, as one of the reasons that you know we look up to that level of, of class solidarity. But unfortunately, that stance caused the Teamsters to develop a reputation in 
sort of multiple different ways. In one way, a good reputation as this is a union that will actually fight for the interests of other workers as well. Mm -hmm. But because they became famous for that, it unfortunately did create actual opportunities for actual corruption. Because, like, you know, this widespread knowledge of the militancy of the Teamsters Union and their normal refusal to cross picket lines created openings for for actually corrupt union officials to set up deals with local businesses where they'd pay them kickbacks in order to get the Teamsters to stop honoring other picket lines. So you would have examples where, say, there's, you know, workers are on strike at at a laundry and they're not getting any of their stuff delivered by the Teamsters. Well, you know, some may there may be there's a local leader who's like, hey, you know, I don't really give a shit about these laundry workers. And this business is offering me a nice uh, little check here if uh, I tell the membership that we're not honoring this picket line. So fuck mm-hmm. them. That's what we're going to do. Yeah, that's shitty. And, yeah. And so, again, this was not. Again, it's it's not a particularly super widespread practice, but it did happen. And that is a very real form of corruption, which did hurt the workers while helping bosses. And and, and that sort of corruption, though, which is the funny thing, because that, you know, we would roundly condemn and is an actual problem that mm-hmm. needed to be dealt with. But that kind of corruption didn't t- show nearly the amount of ire or space in the press as the non-corrupt actions of the unions to honor other picket lines. And, and in, in the book, Whitwer quotes labor historians, uh, Selig Perlman and Philip Taft to describe really the strategy of the bosses and the capitalist press saying, quote, employers sought to convince the public that labor was both the aggressor and oppressor. It was the employer who suffered from tyranny and oppression, end quote. Wow. I know that, when I go to work, I think about that man in the big office and how hard it must be for him <laughs> every single day. <laughs> yeah, it's so much like it's 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 so funny when you read the, some of the extracts from the press at this time, because it's it's literally like, you know, because we, we we there's discourse, you know, that mm-hmm. always happens about the the way that brands on social media try and co-opt different forms of discourse and and language and how incredibly annoying that is and that's why there's you know those silence brand memes well and just but, like that just like today there was discourse back then discourse was not <laughs> invented by twitter.com that's true <laughs> but and, and and so in the discourse then there was there's all this stuff when you read quotes of basically like, oh, it's just this like, ooh, small bean business just trying to get by. And there's these <laughs> big mean teamsters who just won't let them do a free trade. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's absurd. <laughs> but it's, you know, that's what was getting shown up in the press. It was this idea that the labor unions are initiating all the violence. The labor unions are the ones like doing the corruption there's it it was an entirely one-sided portrait which of course i'm sure listeners are not exactly unfamiliar with Mm -hmm. from the press we still have today (laughs) um and so for an example of this in 1905 after local department store montgomery ward refused to hire workers organized with the garment workers union the teamsters launched a strike against deliveries to the store in solidarity with the garment workers 
At the behest of local business leaders, the city of Chicago launched a criminal investigation into the strike, claiming with no evidence that the workers were paid to strike by rival business owners. (laughs) Yeah, that happens. (laughs) And, And so now that sort of strike, I know that sounds goofy and it was, but I hate to say this. There was a tiny sliver of truth in this because that sort of arrangement where corrupt leadership took payoffs to strike against certain businesses, but not others and Mm. not for reasons of actually improving worker conditions, but just because they got paid to do it. That had happened. That had actually occurred, but not very often. And a 1903 reform movement, which again, we're only four years into the Teamsters and there's already a rank and file movement to push out what few corrupt officials were already there. Right. So well, a lot can happen in four years. Yeah. Oh no, but I just think that it's, it, this is a thing that's I think encouraging is the, yeah. the fact that as long as there has actually been real corrupt officials, there has also been a real rank and file movement to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. Huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Weird. It's like, it fits with the theme of the show. Um, and so, that 1903 reform movement had thrown out most of the leaders that were known to be involved in that sort of an arrangement. Additionally, despite the claims from the struck business owners at Montgomery Ward that their rivals paid for the strike, the city's criminal investigation mm, didn't even bother investigating that and focused purely on smearing the Teamsters. There was no, no investigation into well, if these other businesses are higher, are paying off unions, we better make sure that we hold them accountable for this. No. So, well, I mean, that would be, in, that would be interrupting free trade, you know? Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so to further color how this investigation was carried out in a truly impartial manner, During the investigation, the city's prosecutors met at the end of every day with attorneys for the Employers Association to coordinate the strategy for the investigation. Wait, the Employers Association is a governmental organization, right? Just like the Chamber of Commerce. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just just for the listeners, it is not. (laughs) Yeah. It is is what we call a cartel, I believe. Yeah, I mean, it's it's yeah, it's a the trade association mm-hmm. that law basically actually what most people I think would think of them today. While there are trade associations that are more directly like this, in the actions of what they're doing, it's a lot more like a a, a firm like McKinsey or oh, like yeah. consultants who go out and their whole thing is basically we're lobbying for how great capitalism is and how you should never do anything that ever restricts the rights of business owners in any way ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> Gun cocking sounds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the grand jury that was set up by the city to investigate the horror of the Teamsters honoring a strike at a department store, uh, they they dug into the past of Teamsters president, the very first president of the union, Cornelius Shea. And when they could find no evidence of corruption or illegal collusion in the strike, they instead chose to publicize Shea's private transgression of having an affair outside of his marriage. And despite, again, the total lack of any evidence or criminal convictions against the union in the 1905 strike, the smear campaign did work to turn many middle-class liberals who had previously voiced support for the union against it on moral grounds. Oh, classic tactic. <laughs> can't, get them, can't get them on any kind of like real evidence for anything, so uh, I guess we'll just run a smear campaign as hard as we can. I mean, like uh, Jeremy Corbyn jumps to mind. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it's, it's literally like these, they were paid to do an illegal strike. Oh, really? Can you show us the evidence they were paid? No. But, but that <laughs> would be crazy if it were true, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's like, okay, well, do you have like witnesses at least? Well, no. Uh, okay, well, uh, and, well, but their president had an affair. <laughs> like that, that's their whole case. The, the mob forms in the street. <laughs> yeah, well, and unfortunately, that sort of salacious attack actually, you know, again, on the waffling middle class liberals did have an effect. Mm-hmm. Not so much on the working class members of the union, though. Probably not. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, while no Teamsters officials were convicted of any criminal wrongdoing in the strike, the smear campaign had its intended effect. Public support for unions, especially from the middle class, dropped, which helped convince Teamster leadership to end their policy of blanket engaging in sympathy strikes. They would still avoid crossing picket lines wherever possible, for sure, as that policy continues today. But the policy of actively engaging in controversial sympathy strikes across the board, for which they were so often accused of racketeering and extortion, that would fall to the Wade side after this 1905 strike. And explaining why the Teamsters had not joined a Chicago freight handler strike in 1912, then-president of the union Daniel Tobin told reporters that the move was because of, quote, the lesson we learned in 1905 when our organization was practically ruined, end quote. And so, like, while the bosses were unable to hit the Teamsters with any legal charges for the strike, their control of the media allowed them to indict the union in the court of public opinion. And that had real material impacts. Yeah, I mean, we never see that anymore. People don't call teachers and nurses greedy every fucking day in this (laughs) stupid-ass country. (laughs) Yeah, we need to end the capitalist press. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and so... That's about where we're going to stop for the history for this episode. And I know that we've barely scratched the surface of the history of the Teamsters. We've only got up to 1905. Trust me, we're going to accelerate in the the next episode. Fortunately, podcasts take place in a serial format sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so, like, we've only gotten into the very beginning. But just a few years into the existence of the Teamsters Union, we already see many of the types of attacks we still see today against unions heaped on the Teamsters by the press. Even from the 19th century, it was clear that capitalist control of the press would play a major role in shaping public opinion, and thus was one of the main avenues for class warfare by the rich. Over a century ago, the press was already expert at contorting facts and suppressing inconvenient information about violence and exploitation by bosses in favor of lurid, sensationalized tales of extreme violence by workers. This is a pattern that we will see repeated not just against the Teamsters, but against all of organized labor throughout its entire existence. Still today, we hear many of these same lines of attack, which is why it's so vital for us to look back at history from a class perspective. By examining the actions of Teamster leaders from a working class lens, we can better judge what actions were actually corrupt and self-serving, and which were simply trying to do the best they could for their membership in the face of a violent and incredibly powerful opposition. By separating fact from fiction, we can identify the real acts of corruption and dig into their root causes and come up with ways that we can fight them, you know, in our organizations today. And only through this sort of investigation can we propose effective solutions. In our next episode, we'll cover more early Teamster history, focusing on the long period of the first half of the 20th century when the union was steered by Daniel Tobin an early reformer and longest-serving president in Teamster history. 
the massive societal changes of the first decades of the 20th century, the widespread adoption of the automobile, the creation of interstate highways, two world wars, and the rise of organized crime syndicates across the country would all play a role in shaping the future of the Teamsters Union as we approach the Hoffa era. Damn, this is exciting as hell. I am absolute like I, I've already gone. I've gone over this information, but I am. St- it's just riveting to even go over it again, and I'm very excited to be doing this series. And we really want to thank all of the patrons for supporting the show because we really could not do this without you. Because we are an entirely listener-supported show. So, I mean, with that, we want to invite you to hang out with us in the Discord, talk to us about what you think about any of these things, what you think about, you know, the racketeering or any of the other aspects of this. And, uh, you know, write us a review somewhere. It helps us out a ton and makes sure that more people find us, that more people can hear this really important history, and you'll have to argue with less people about this dumb shit, and it'll make your whole life better. I promise. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so follow us in all the places. You can go to workstoppagepod.com to find all of the links. And, you know, listen to all the other shows, Beep Beep Lettuce, Red Game Table, and as always... Labor peace is not in our interest, and solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. Life's a hard road for a poor man who must travel by his labor. And times come up when he can't use a helping hand from neighbors. That's the way it all got started. That's how it all began. When they ask me, I'm going to tell them I'm on the Teamster plan. Looking back a ways to those days When the companies were damn kings And the work was in a bad way And you hardly made a damn thing Well, the neighbors got together They were forced to make a stand When they asked me, I'm gonna tell them I'm on the Teamster plan And I'm a-talking to you teachers Every strong arm on the farm And everywhere this music reaches There's a better way of coming It's sweeping across the land When they ask me, I'm gonna tell them I'm on the Teamster plan Well, there's a better way of coming It's sweeping across the land when they ask me, I'm gonna tell them I'm on the Teamster plan. When they ask me, I'm gonna tell them I'm on the Teamster plan. Oh, I'm